had a number of questions that came in via email, so maybe we'll start with some of those. But there are microphones in the back. Who has those? Sheldon, you have a microphone. And someone over here. Marco. Marco, I see. Yeah, Marco has a... And uh, I see people are already starting to go there. So if you want to start working your way back there, if you'd like to ask a question from the floor, we're doing that. And then we'll sprinkle in the uh, questions that we got uh, via email. We will not get to all of them today. I guarantee you that because I think I had like 14 questions emailed to me. I know we'll have people from the floor and there's just no way that we're going to get through all of those. But we'll get through as many as we can. And oftentimes, Mike or somebody else will answer some of yours, uh, you know, via a, an email request back or something. I'll make sure that we can do that as well, or we'll just hold them for the next time w- that we do a Q and A. But let me just start in a word of prayer, and then let let let's jump in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity we have this morning to get together to fellowship with like-minded believers and. Lord, what sweet fellowship it is and what a sweet refreshment it is to come on Sunday mornings to be surrounded by other believers, to hear God's word proclaimed. Um, And then this morning, Lord, even to be able to look intently into your word, knowing that uh, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness is held in scripture. And so, Lord, thank you for Mike. Thank you for Phil. Thank you for their dedication and commitment to your word and to shepherding your people. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give Mike strength this morning and wisdom and clarity, even as uh, we go through uh, these practical questions of how Scripture uh, applies to our life and how we need to live these things out. Lord, we just ask your hand of blessing to be upon us throughout the morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, good. I don't know if you have any opening comments or you just want to jump in. It's just always a pleasure to do this. We try to do this twice a year, uh, not, not to, I mean, not, not for really any other reason, but for, for us to hear from you. I mean, we are concerned as pastors to answer the questions that are on your minds that, uh, maybe they, that don't get covered in the normal course of exposition or preaching as, as we go through the topics that we're preaching through. And so it's just an opportunity always to sort of take the spiritual temperature of the group and to hear what's on your minds and try to give you guidance uh, on the things that you're dealing with um, day to day. So maybe maybe use that as a as a frame for the kinds of questions that you would ask uh, if you ask them. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do miss I do miss Phil. I always wish that uh, he's here with me. I think that I'm better when I can uh, kind of bounce off of him, but. We'll, uh, we'll trust that uh, he's with us in spirit and uh, that the Holy Spirit will help me. So, Well, maybe to kick it off, I mean, obviously, Mike, you've been doing your whole series on, you know, lately it's, the focus has been on, you know, manhood and, and, and talking even about transgender and LGBTQ and how do we address those things and how have we gotten to where we are today in society. And so very practically, I know you've probably answered this before in some of the Q&As, but uh, it came up again. Somebody wrote in and they said, my niece is in a homosexual relationship and will be marrying her partner soon. I've been invited to the wedding. Am I dishonoring Christ and or voluntarily partaking in sin if I attend the wedding? And maybe even more so that we've had those that have had, you know, sons and daughters that are in those kind of relationships. What would you say to that person? And maybe even beyond the wedding, how should we be, you know, relating to these folks? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer to the, the wedding, I, I mean, I think that, first of all, it's not marriage, right? You cannot, marriage is between uh, one man and one woman for life. And so you can't, I mean, even that notion, my niece will be marrying her partner. No, she won't. Uh, she'll be 
you know, having a ceremony that, that seeks to imitate marriage, but you, you can no more have a homosexual marriage than you can have dry water or square circles or anything else. It's just, you, you know, you can't marriage. What marriage is, is uh, de- definitionally heterosexual. And so, no. And then I think the reality is, is if, even if you were to call it a commitment ceremony or whatever else, I think that the nature of those ceremonies is to celebrate or solemnize the union that's being, you know, taking, taking place. And any kind of, any kind of affirmation, let alone a celebration of such things, I think is contrary to, you know, biblical Christianity. It's not in the spirit of Christ to just sort of say, well, you know, I want to be loving, I want to be compassionate, I want to be understanding, and so I'll go and show my love and support. But that's not love. That, that's, that's, that's lying to someone. That's encouraging their delusion. It's encouraging their rebellion and um, tacitly signing off on something in their life that, if not repented of, will end in their destruction, in their misery, uh, in their harm, and and love doesn't do that, right? Love does not affirm someone that in a course of action that will harm them. Love actually speaks the difficult word, even if it you know it's anticipated that it'll bring offense for the sake of doing the good you know to the, to that person. And, and what good are you seeking to do? You're seeking to protect them from spiritual death. Because if you are in a pattern of, of sin that is unrepented of, oh, what, is, what does 1 Corinthians 6 say, right? No homosexual will enter the kingdom of God. And so if the, the greatest act of love that you can, you can do for someone is to seek their greatest and everlasting blessing and benefit, well, then you must necessarily do everything you can to warn them off of a course that imperils that benefit and blessing that seeks to everlastingly undo them and ruin them. And so uh, I think that what you wind up having to do in that situation is to say, you know, I, I love you and want good things for you, my niece, you know, whoever it is in your family. But, you know, as you've heard me say before, and I think that that's a key piece, that there it presupposes a relationship in which such a conversation will have taken place, Right. As you've heard me say before, what you are doing is is rebellion against God. It's contrary to to nature and your own conscience. And and you need to not do this. You need to call this off. You need to stop this. You need to turn around. You need to repent. But if you choose not to do that, I I can't be there encouraging you in a course of action that I know leads to your ultimate harm and destruction. Uh, I need to I need to warn you away from that, and so I, I won't be coming. And then, and and you know, that's for the the celebrations and the affirmation and things like that. I think that needs to characterize our interactions with others as well. I, I cannot celebrate or affirm that which is ultimately harmful to you and dishonoring to God. At, at the same time, you know, you you seek to maintain whatever relationship they will allow with them. Uh, you know, as long as you're being that upfront, right? So like the maintenance of the relationship at all costs is unfaithfulness, right? That's pragmatism. Well, how, how are they ever going to hear the, about the gospel if it's not from me? And how, how will they hear it from me unless I compromise and, you know, make them feel like I'm sort of uh, semi-affirming or maybe I won't just 
Uh, maybe I'll just kind of keep quiet, right? Because I'm the only way they're going to get the truth, right? That, that's a little bit arrogant, right? You can't control what their response to your response to their sinning is, right? You respond biblically. You respond lovingly, gently, eager for a relationship. I, I want to continue to have these conversations with you. I want to have a time where we would, be, you know, have each other in our homes and things like that. Um, but I, I need to be very, very clear about where we are on this matter. And once you do that, once you are very clear, it, it'll often be the case that they refuse to have that relationship. And a lot of times that's because uh, folks who accuse Christians of being hateful and bigoted are actually them, themselves hateful and bigoted, right? If we were actually hateful and bigoted, we would say, ew, yuck, you're disgusting, get away from it, I don't want you around, right? That's the hate and the, and the bigotry that, you know, accompanies uh, sort of the just, just visceral disgust uh, about sin. No, again, I mean, you've heard me preach the, the sermon on, on Christ, the fountain of cleansing, you know, the leper. The leper is the outcast. He's the person that everyone does have that reaction to. Ugh, you know, get away. You should be in your colony and screaming out unclean. Get away from me. Why are you touching me? Right. And what does Jesus do? He says, I am willing. He touches the leper. Be cleansed. Right. So I'm not talk- we're not talking about that. We're not talking about some sort of visceral get away from me. Jesus comes to touch the unclean. We go to minister to those who are outcasts who are different, who were treated poorly. We don't cut off that relationship, but we don't compromise in order to create that relationship. It's not like Jesus said, you know, oh, let me partake in uncleanness in order to sort of identify with the one who is unclean. Uh, he, he cleansed him, right? And we ought to have that kind of cleansing reaction. But when you don't compromise, it's often the case that they will be hateful and bigoted toward you and say, I can't believe that you won't un, you know, um, mitigatedly affirm and celebrate uh, my perversions. And the fact that you won't do that, the fact that you won't affirm me in these things makes you so disgusting and repulsive to me that I don't want any relationship with you. Now, you can't control that. If that's their reaction, uh, that's their reaction. And you tell them that that grieves you, that that's not at all ever been your intent, that you desire to have that relationship continue, but it won't be at the expense of truth, of faithfulness to Christ and Scripture, or the expense of your genuine love to them, right? And, and they, what, what have they done? They've constructed a, a fantasy world, a world in which uh, the morality that, that our creator gives us is, is subjective, is open to interpretation, is in flux, and that they won't face judgment for infractions against that standard. That's, that's fantasy. And, and we don't play pretend with people because it hurts their feelings to not do that, do that. And at the same time, we're not intensely abrasive and bombastic and, you know, uh, seeking to alienate folks. We, we want to have open hands, uh, but there, there's a line we don't go past. And that's the, you know, the line of truth. There's a way, there's a way to say hard things softly and lovingly and patiently, right? You can be poignant without being pungent. <laughs> you can, you know what I mean? You can, you can be strong without being abrasive. And I think that's, that's where we need to be. Thank you. All right, let's go to the back. Marco, who do you have back there? 
Well, my name is Luke Brennan, and my question is, how long have you been a pastor? I've been a pastor of local outreach ministries here at Grace Church since January of 2012, which makes that 11 years, and pastor of Grace Life for the same time minus five months. I think it was May 27th was when I was officially brought into Grace Life on, uh, in 2012, so just over 11 years now. Is there a follow-up question there? That, that was a short one. We'll, easy give, one. We'll, we'll give you another one, guys. <laughs> Hello, my name is Jace Brennan. My question is, um, my sister is seven, so if she died, I'd because David wrote, if she, it, his when his baby died, it went to heaven. If she died because she has. Uh, quite a bit of knowledge, would she go to heaven? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that more generally it's, you know, if we believe, if we have the conviction, and we do, that infants like like David's child there, when they die, go to heaven, it, the question is sort of like, when does that when is where, where, when's that cut off, right? When does when does somebody stop being uh, an infant and start being accountable for the corruption, the guilt, and the corruption that they inherit from Adam? Uh, because we all are born guilty of Adam's sin. If we didn't sin at all ourselves, the the guilt of of Adam's transgression uh, counted to be ours is sufficient to condemn us all. Uh, when, when we say that babies you know, go to heaven uh, when they die, it's not because we're saying that babies are innocent. Uh, and, and it's not because we're saying that it's a matter of justice or righteousness. You know, God has to reward them. It would be unjust for him to punish them. No, every member of the human race is, was uni- is united to Adam, was united to Adam in Adam's transgression. Romans 5.12, right? Uh, so death spread to all men because all sinned, past tense, when did all men sin in the past? They sinned in their head, Adam. In Adam, in union with Adam, all die, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, And so there's a spiritual death that took place upon all of us, even before we existed, right, that, that makes it so that we are all born guilty and we're all born corrupt. When babies are saved because of God's grace, uh, they are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They're saved by the atoning work of, of Christ. It, it's not as if God elects some and not others, and then the ones he's not elected, it is that he elects some and not others, but it's not as if the ones that he has not elected, if they die too early, oh, they jump into the category of elect. No, the election is a decree that, that is prior to any, any circumstances of life. And so God chooses Paul and not somebody over here for salvation. And Paul dies in infancy. Well, and then over here he's chosen somebody else, call him John. And John survives into adulthood. Both Paul and John's eternity are equally sealed. It's, it's simply that God has chosen to bring Paul to himself immediately upon his birth and John to himself after 80 years of life. So you don't, you don't move from non-elect to elect simply by dying too soon. Anyway, with that as a framework, the question is, 
when do you move from a time where you would be saved to when you're accountable? And ultimately, the answer is we don't know. I think it's different in every single individual. You can have, uh, I think, I think the key thing is, you know, you become, you know, you become sinning in the pattern of Adam. Romans 5 talks about that. That, that those died who didn't, who sinned not, who didn't even sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. In other words, they didn't sin willingly of their own volition. They didn't begin to work out their corruption. They simply had guilt. And because of that guilt, they died. But when you begin to willfully sin against a clear understanding of God's commandments, then I think that God, you know, holds you accountable like he does anybody else. There are certain people who advance to a, to an age, but they never develop mentally. And so it becomes impossible for them to really understand the significance of their rebellion, right? A child, you tell the child to be quiet and they say, ah, you know, I was on a plane with a 10 month old yesterday all day. And I'm very familiar with that. She doesn't know that she, you know, she's disobeying her parents, right? She just doesn't have that capacity. When she does have that capacity, you know, the, the question is, when is that? Is it two years old, five years old, seven years old? I, th- I think it winds up being different for different individuals. And so I don't speak of an age of accountability. If anything, I speak of a condition of accountability, and that condition, I think, varies between person to person. But if, if there is an understanding of what God requires and how, uh, you know, I, I'm willingly rebelling against that standard, and the idea that here is a way, a way of escape offered to me in Christ who is paid for sins and risen again, and that's rejected, I think that you're accountable. I think that maybe even different, maybe different pastors on Grace Church staff might answer that uh, differently. But I, th- I think the big thing is it's it's never too soon to call somebody to believe, right? It's never too soon to teach about sin and grace and call to repentance. And so I, I don't know whether your sister would, if she were to die. Uh, would go to heaven or would be held accountable for her sins. But I do know that it's good for you and your your family to press upon those things with her and to insist that God is holy, that you, like me, are sinful, and we lie open to the judgment of God. When we disobey mom and dad, we get a punishment. If we disobey our heavenly father, we get a, a, a God-sized punishment. And that's eternity in hell. And it's and we can we can be freed from that because God has poured out that punishment upon a willing substitute, His own Son, who welcomes everyone to Him, uh, who who turns from sin and confesses their faith in Him. So I just I think that's you just bring it back to the gospel and pray for God's providence to give enough time for that message to be heard and heeded. Sheldon, over your way. Good morning. My question is. Uh, it's a bit of a long one, so. Uh, but it's some people say that you can make images of God, whether it be God in general or God the Father, so long as you don't intend to worship the image. Exodus twenty verses four and five say, "You shall not make any make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or is in the water of, uh, under the under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them." Exodus thirty four seventeen simply says. You shall not make molded gods for yourselves with no mention of worshiping them. Based on these two passages, what is forbidden? The making of images of false gods, making images of Yahweh, 
the making of any gods, real or fake, or the making of any gods, real or fake, solely with the intention of worshiping them? Yeah, that's, it's... Uh... A good question. I don't think the the lack of mentioning, you know, or as you, as you have in Exodus 20, you know, you shall not worship them or serve them. I don't think the absence of that kind of prohibition in Exodus 34 is a distinction in meaning because to to make gods implies worshiping them, right? What do you do with gods? You, you know, you, you pray to them, you worship them, you do them obeisance and all these sorts of things. So I, I would find those both passages to be equivalent in their in their substance. Because God is spirit, right, and, and does not have a body like men, and because he, he, so he's incorporeal, and because he is, he is infinitely glorious and beautiful, any kind of attempt to represent the God who is spirit in, in some sort of physical way is necessarily a denigration, right? It's necessarily uh, trying to comprehend the infinite. It's trying to, to bring what is infinite and eternal and spiritual into something of a, of a prison, something of a, of a, a, a confined form, uh, which, which he transcends, right? And, uh, and so anytime we, we, we make an image of God like that, whether we're praying to it or whether we're just sort of illustrating it in a children's book, we're doing a disservice to God's eternal nature. And on top of that, you know, God being incorporeal, I mean, he, he could have instituted certain uh, worship practices, certainly in Israel and even in the church, where, where such images of himself were used as aids to worship him as the real thing. And, and he chose not to do that. He chose actually to insist upon revealing himself through words and of course, in, in you know, or those earlier times, through representations, you know, a burning bush, a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and things like that. But things which are not things which are not like uh, representing the image of God's face, because God doesn't have a face, right? God is entirely uh, spirit and incorporeal. So he he does not, you know. Some people will say, well, I, you know, I just use this as an aid to worship the real God. Well, well, God hasn't instituted worship that way. He hasn't instituted worship of Himself with such physical, tangible aids. Uh, he, he's given us a word, and He's called us to direct praise to the God who is invisible through the informed worship, uh, informed by uh, these words. At at the same time. God then has made himself visible in the image of the invisible God, right? Christ Jesus being the perfect man, man being created in the image of God, having fallen, marred the image of God. Now that image of God being restored comes, in, comes by faith in the one who is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature, the character, the imprint of God himself. It, it, that doesn't mean, though, that, well, if God were human, he'd look like Jesus of Nazareth, right? It, it's, not, it's not trying to be sort of, I don't know, spooky with it, right? It's, it's not like, uh, we have such a, I think we have, we're so drawn to making tangible and visible that which is inherently intangible and invisible because we're so man-centered and, 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 and me-centered, really, right? I have to create a God in my own image in order for me to understand it rather than recognizing that you're created in his image. 
Nevertheless, the fact that, that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal second person of the Trinity and man, you know, with a fully human nature right alongside his divine nature and personal union, means that, that in, in that sense, God himself has depicted God as, you know, in this, in this human being, Jesus, right? And for that reason, I get a little bit tenuous with hard, hard and fast claims of images of Jesus are second commandment violations. So I think everything in your multiple choice list is, I would say, stay away from all of it. I think the second commandment, you know, uh, forbids all of that. When it comes to representing Jesus physically, I really don't like it. I'm uncomfortable with it. You say, what are you talking about? You just, you have this huge, this book with this huge face of Jesus on it. I didn't, I didn't pick the cover. In fact, I pushed back on it and they told me, sorry, this is what we're, what we're doing. And, and publishers are like that, uh, when you, when you do that. I, I didn't think ahead of time to say, hey, could we stay away from images of Jesus? And, and so when I pushed back, they were like, well, it's kind of done. So, so I'm not, it bothers me because I do think that there is, there are Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox who do bow down literally and worship these statues or paintings or whatever else. You know, I was in Russia back in 2015 and, and you go into these Eastern Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox churches and you see the icons and they're worn thin, like the paint is worn off the picture because people kiss it, you know, and, and it's just, it's just the kind of, it's a kind of tangible veneration that's idolatrous. Even though they're attempting to worship, you know, the true God, they're doing it in a way that he has not commanded them. And we know what happens. Nadab and Abihu tell us what happens when you do that. But with images of Jesus, it makes me uncomfortable. And I actually go around, but if I see one, I put a post-it note over it. Um, you know, I turn the turn of magazine upside down. Um, so you can imagine how uncomfortable it makes me to have a book like this with my name on it. Um, I was wondering what all those post-it notes were back there. Yeah. Yeah. Go, I won't be offended if you get a post-it note or a sticker or something and you just pop it on there. But... But if I was to press and say, okay, is it really a scruple? And this is why I didn't insist on it all the way. Is it really a scruple for me to say that is making an image of God? Well, it is, it is making an image of one who is God, but it's making an image of the, uh, the appearance of the human nature of the one who is God. That's as improper as the one who is God dying or hungering or thirsting. And yet all of those things happen, right? It, we, we don't, uh, God died. Well, God in his deity didn't die. The one who was God died according to his humanity, right? And so I think that in the same way we can predicate, you know, th- actions of the God man that are in accordance with his humanity while not denying his divinity. In the same way, I don't think it's technically a sin to make an image of Jesus, you know, in a children's book or in a Sunday school curriculum or something like that, um, because what you're doing is not trying to picture the ineffable God. You're trying to make a representation of what God himself has already made a representation of in the incarnate uh, human Jesus. Now, none of us knows what Jesus looked like, right? N- none of us has any idea, you know, it's, he's likely not anything like all the pictures of him look look like. And so we're playing with fire there anyway, right? I, well, God in his providence does not given us any photographs or videotape of, of the incarnate Christ. He calls us to an unseen 
faith or, or faith in the unseen, seeing what is unseen. Uh, Moses endured, not fearing the wrath of the king because he was looking to his reward, Hebrews 11. God, God calls us away from sort of the sure and substance, you know, it's right in front of you, right? What does Jesus himself say? You, you know, he tells Thomas, put the hands in my wounds. You know, you believe because you've seen. I tell you, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet believe. And so there, there's something to this invisibility that we're called to trust in that I think denigrates and deprecates our own sense of pride. Show it to me. Make, prove it, right? And says, no, you'll be dependent upon my revelation of myself, which is not, aside from 33 years, in any sort of physical form, right? So, like you said, it's a long question, long answer. At the same time, having said all of that, like while I'm not technically going to rip somebody for an image, I would counsel people not to make them. And I personally stay away from children's books and things like that that have those images in them, uh, not because I think this that would be sin, because I just can't get my conscience to go there, but because uh, I think it too easily crosses into sin for a lot of people. Uh, I just would rather stay away. Good. Um, let me take one off of my list again, too, because I don't want to not get to some of those. Sort of, not really along the same lines you were talking about, but kind of an interesting change here. One of the people that emailed in said, at the cross, when Jesus gave up his spirit, was it his human spirit or the divine eternal spirit of the second person of the Trinity that he was giving up? And then he goes on, did the omnipresent divine second person of the Trinity, God the Son our Lord and Savior, at any time during the crucifixion, distance himself from the person or humanity of Christ. Okay, from the person or humanity of Christ. No. So it, I think it was his human spirit, right? You know, the, the concept of giving up the ghost, this is, this is where we get that phrase from, the, you know, ghost and spirit being the same, you know, the, the Germanic and Latin roots of the same idea, spirit. Um, Jesus, uh, the, the, you know, the man Christ Jesus ha- is also the second person of the Trinity from eternity. And when he takes on a humanity, when, when the, the Son, when the eternal Son assumes a human nature, he, he assumes both a, a body and a rational soul. That's Chalcedon, right? That, that he, he, he assumes all of human nature. He doesn't just personalize a body as if he were putting on a a physical costume, because then he wouldn't be truly human. Humans are not just bodies. Humans are body-soul composites. We learned about that as we've spent our time in Genesis, and we talk about the goodness of the body, but the, the unity between body and spirit. Death severs that natural unity in every one of us, right? Our, our body stays and goes into the coffin and into the ground, but our spirit has, has this, you know, either ascends to heaven or goes into, into hell, uh, awaiting the final resurrection when the spirit and body will be reunited either unto a resurrection of life or unto a resurrection of judgment. So humans, when they die, the spirit separates from the body. Because Jesus was fully human, he assumed a body along as well as a, a rational soul. And when he died as a man, his a human spirit was severed from his human body. The, there, there was, so in that sense, you, I mean, was there a separation between the human body uh, of Jesus and, you know, the, the second person of the Trinity? Well, 
the second person of the Trinity was never confined to that body in the first place. And so, you know, I'd be inclined to say no. But the, the human spirit of, the, of Jesus of Nazareth is, is with the Father that day in paradise, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. And so I think that, that answers the question. I could probably go further. Yeah. There is no, the key thing here is that there is no rupture in the, in the Trinity. The, the persons of the Trinity all subsist in the identical nature, and that nature is never divided. And so even when the Father is pouring out his wrath upon his Son, even when Jesus cries out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he, he senses that real spiritual abandonment that we all would have endured in hell, Jesus as our substitute has to experience that as well, or, or we're, we're doomed to experience it. It was a real forsakenness, but that doesn't undermine, or it, doesn't, it doesn't drive a wedge metaphysically in, you know, between the, the persons of the Trinity. Perhaps you could speak of a relational abandonment, a relational separation, but that, that certainly doesn't mean that the, the Son is now kicked out of the Trinity for a little while, while the Father and Spirit, you know, wait for re- the resurrection to have him back. And, and we don't want to divide the second person of the Trinity from the human nature of Christ, body or soul, because the Son is forever incarnate, right? This, the, the incarnation is a forever action. It doesn't get, you don't go back on it. And so in, in the same way that my soul is separate from my body in death in the intermediate state, in that same way that it happened to the man Christ Jesus. But there was not a, an undoing of the incarnation at the death of Christ, and there was not an undoing of the Trinity uh, at the cross. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I, that's... I've always thought the giving up of his spirit was the indication that he really physically died. Mm-hmm. You know, that he, you know, and that would be an, a way that people would understand that he physically died. And, and that that point there wasn't that he somehow gave up his, you know. Anything else. Correct. Yeah, and, and, the, and the language of giving it up, you know, shows that John ten eighteen, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. You know, we die Jesus gives up his spirit. He himself is laying down his life because he's sovereign to do so and no one takes it from him. Thank you. Do we have some more back? Go back to Marco's side. Yes. How can I counsel someone who's struggling with anxiety and like panic attacks? With anxiety and panic attacks? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, first of all, you know, this problem, I'm going to assume this person is a Christian, at least a professing Christian. Um, I, I think that you know, and is this is this somebody who is a friend and you have a relationship with versus, you know, you're a biblical counselor and they've shown up and uh, you're trying to cultivate that relationship early? Ultimately, I think that, you know, some main principles, it may not be the first thing you say, but I think main principles are you're counseling them with anxiety, uh, regarding anxiety, because the Bible indeed says anxiety is a sin. So we don't counsel people with anxiety by defining their sin away and coddling their rebellion. The Bible says, be anxious for nothing. Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall wear. Those are commands, and anytime we worry or are anxious for something, we sin by breaking those commands. That doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It doesn't mean that you're, I mean, you're already a horrible person. You should be used to being feeling like a horrible person, right? (laughs) You're a sinner, you, you, you deserve to go to hell. You sin against God every day. You're a, you, you are a horrible person, all of you, right? Um, jo- join me at the table of horrible people. Um, so, one, we should cultivate an attitude that doesn't bristle 
at being called horrible because that's just who we are. Having an accurate assessment of who we are keeps us from the pride that gets our feelings hurt when we're told what our sin is. So number one, I I, want to help somebody see that that is actually sinful and it has to be repented of. Now you could say, you don't start with that because it can make them absolutely despair ever of having hope. I get that. You don't, you don't have to start there, but in your mind, you have to fix it in your mind that we're not talking about a struggle or a mistake or an issue. We're talking about sin. Okay. And are there, are there physical issues that may be interacting with the feelings that, of anxiety? Maybe, right? There could be hormonal issues, there, you know, postpartum. There can be, uh, you know, um, all, all sorts of uh, physiological issues. But, but with, with those physiological issues, right, those physiological issues are, are testable, right? If, if it's my brain chemistry that's off, show me my brain chemistry, right? Give me a PET scan, a CT scan, show me where my physicality is, is, is off. Um, but don't say that my mind, which is immaterial, is sick, which is a, a, you know, the, the, a word for material realities. Um, if you can't show me physical problems, then I'm not going to look necessarily for physical solutions. Uh, if, if you're saying it's a mental problem, a spiritual problem, I'm going to look for mental and spiritual solutions. So one, we're talking about sin. Two, we want to be sensitive to physical realities, but we don't want to sort of export all of the, the spiritual uh, content out to what physical causes or factors there may be. And then uh, third, I think that you help somebody recognize that objectively, if you're in Christ, you literally have nothing to worry about. Your greatest fear, your greatest threat, your greatest danger was extinguished when your Savior cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, right? Uh, You deserve to be in hell now. You deserve the most unimaginable, excruciating torture, and you are free from that, not only now, but ever. That punishment can never break over your head. Why? Because your Savior swallowed it up in three hours, and, and you can rest easy in that. And then... That Savior who has extinguished your greatest threat promises to be with you every single day of your life and to so order all things which have been placed under his feet that no harm can befall you except what comes from his own hand, which he promises to be for your good. To know that is to be absent of any reason to worry about anything. But what if this? What if that? What if that is your God is still going to bring you to heaven with himself and he's sovereign over every step that happens between then and now. And he will never bring anything into your life for any other reason than that he is making you more like your savior. Praise God. I have reason to rejoice. I don't have a reason to worry about anything, right? And then it's just taking aim at those feelings. What are you doing when you're feeling anxious? You're refusing to believe those things that I've just said. You're, you're in the moment believing a lie that something about that is not true, or you're refusing to really act faith and suck the marrow out of all of those wonderful truths. And so what do you do? You fight it with those very passages, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Don't, don't worry, pray.
pray, right? Ask the God who is sovereign and who is on your side to do what he must do uh, to, to, to help you, to sustain your soul, to, to bring you to heaven, to quiet you, to give you rest. And the peace of God, which transcends all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You, you, you go and you wield the sword of that verse against the dragon of temptation to, anxi- to anxiety and anxious thoughts. Do not worry about what you, know, what you will eat or what you will wear. Matthew 6.25 Look, look at the birds. God cares for them. They, you look at the lilies. They don't spin or, or, you know, gather. The birds don't gather into barns. The, and, and the lilies are clothed in splendor and the birds are, are fed, right? God, who, who counts you to be worth more than lilies or sparrows, is, is, says he's going to take care of you. And so you just wrestle with, do I believe that? Okay, anxious thought. The, the birds have everything they need. The lilies are clothed in splendor. My God cares for me more than them. Do I believe that? Do I believe it? And, and the reality is in the moment, no, I don't believe it unless, uh, you know, unless these, these anxious thoughts are being conquered. And so you sit there and you go to those passages in Scripture which promise all these wonderful things that banish anxiety and you wrestle with God in prayer Till your heart comes to really believe what you say in your head, you believe, and and that's that's how you that's how you battle any sin. You know, if it's if it's anxiety, you go to those passages: Philippians four six, Matthew six. You know, if it's pride, you you remember God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A man's pride will bring him low, and so you wrestle. Do I believe that? Well, no, I don't believe that because I'm puffing myself up. So, Lord, let me get on my face and say, make me believe those things. These are the the truths of Scripture. What in my heart is stopping me from believing that? God, give grace that I would put that rebellion away and that you would give me a heart of faith to believe those things. If it's lust, right, what does lust say to me? It says, look at this thing. It'll satisfy your heart. And the response is, no, it won't. These are lusts of deceit, Ephesians 4, right? Ephesians 4 says that these, these are lusts of deceit, desires that deceive me. And do I believe that it's a lust of deceit? No, I believe it's really going to deliver on its promises, but it won't. So I have to wrestle with God and get that into my soul. I, I, I'm looking at something because I think it'll please me. Matthew 5, 8 says, the pure in heart shall see God. You want to see the most pleasant thing in the world that you can imagine of. It's not in, in illicit images. It's in seeing God. And you know who sees God? The pure. And so if I want to see the thing that really tantalizes the soul, I'll put away my lusts and I'll, and I'll believe that the promise that the pure and art shall see God is true. And therefore, I'll, I'll put that sin to death. So you, you, you battle the unbelief of sin by acting faith upon the promises of God. I don't want God opposing me. I want grace. I believe that he'll give grace to the humble, so I'll pursue humility. I, 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 don't, I don't need to worry about anything because my sovereign God has paid for my sins and he's providentially ordering all things to my good. I, I believe that. Yeah, I think that's good. And I, maybe just to add to that, I mean, this is why, you know, quite often you'll hear somebody say, well, doctrine is not practical. Well, Mike just laid out for you why doctrine is practical, right? Or you'll hear, oh, we're gospel-centered biblical counselors, you know, and you're just like, well, 
okay, the death and resurrection of Christ. No, I'm dealing with anxiety, Paul. Help me get through my anxiety. Well, it all goes back to that. I mean, it all goes back to giving them the gospel to help them know God. The more they know God, the less they'll be anxious. But we just want to go to the problem right away and say, how do I overcome anxiety? Mm-hmm. Or, or how do I get a happy marriage? You know, like, no, 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 I, I don't want all that doctrine. I want to know how I get out of this. Yeah. Well, it's by that that you get out of all yeah. of this. Imperatives are always grounded in those indicative realities. Right. The, 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 the do this and put away that and do not be this is, are grounded in the it is finished. He has done it. He will bring you home. He will not forsake you. These sorts of things. And so you say, well, I, I don't need all that theology. I just tell me how. That's how. It's going, it's going from the cross into the heart, you know, rooting the heart in the cross so that as the roots go deep in the doctrine, the, the tree the, grows and the branches come out and they extend and, and bear fruit uh, and provide shade, right? You don't get the, the blessing of fruit and, and shade by an extension of branches without rooting yourself in the soil of gospel indicatives. We were, I was just at a counseling conference this week, and one of the speakers had said, you know, there's six chapters in Ephesians, right? He said the first three chapters are doctrine. And then the next three chapters are really the living out of that doctrine. And he said, that's how Paul did it in Romans. That's how he did it in Ephesians. You know, like you start there. There's not a single command in Romans until chapter 6, verse 11. And you know what that is? Consider yourself this way. This is true. 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 Think of yourselves this way. And then comes the imperatives. Very good. All right. Sheldon, on your side. Hi, my name is Hannah Coe, and I was hey, wondering... you got preferential treatment, I bet. <laughs> he did make her go second, though, I see, so that's good. When God raised Lazarus from the dead, during the point when he was dead, where was he? Where was Lazarus while he was dead? Yeah, man, that's a good question. You know, uh, what, are the, what would the options be, right? He was unsaved and in hell. He was saved and in heaven. Or he was in some sort of netherworld that uh because god knew that you know he was he was to be raised was uh was was not to enjoy some sort of conscious understanding i have no i have no idea you know i i wouldn't say that lazarus was in hell and he was taken out of his punishment i wouldn't say that he was in heaven and got sucked back into earth because that'd be really messed up i'm sure he would have <laughs> i'm sure he would have talked about that like what are you doing? <laughs> In that case, I think the answer is Scripture just doesn't tell us. What could it be? Could it be that there was some sort of, um, you know, no, no consciousness, some sort of soul sleep or something? I, I mean, I suppose it could be. I, I wouldn't be dogmatic on any of that because the, the Bible just doesn't tell us. You know, usually people don't get resurrected. <laughs> so he's the exception to the rule. The rule is you die in your sins, you go to hell in, in that temporary place of, of punishment until the resurrection. You die covered by the blood of Christ. You go to heaven uh, until that time of, of resurrection unto life. And the exceptions are exceptional. Uh, you could ask him um, in, when, you, when you see him. Great. Sorry, I don't have a better thing. Thanks, well, thanks you know, Hannah. You did it. You stumped him. Yeah. So good. All right. You one, get one more square of uh, one egg thing casserole. That, one thing, though, that kind of... Here, because here, that was too short of an answer for me. Um, 
One thing He's that, not done. Maybe you don't get that square of casserole. Hang on. No, no. Just a quick observation. You know, we kind of jest, you know, Hannah comes to Sheldon, her dad, to say, or to ask a question. We all kind of assume in a funny way that there's some sort of in there. <laughs> and you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the intercessory ministry of Christ. We have an in with our elder brother to, to the throne room of, of, of heaven. And it's and it's it's the same exact way. You're my dad in that case versus you're my brother, and the access is yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. So beautiful picture. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I cried too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the lack of sleep. I need an intercessor, is what it is. <laughs> Let's go one more question back there, then I'll go off our sheet again. My name is Gabriel Anderson, and I have a question regarding eternal value and pagan literature. So I was told by a Christian professor once that there isn't something of eternal value in everything we do. So does everything that we do need to have something of eternal value? And if so, is there any eternal value in reading pagan literature? So I, I would, to, to the principle, right, and that makes my mind go immediately to 1 Corinthians 3, where we talk about building on a foundation that, you know, of, of precious stones that will survive the, the judgment seat of Christ rather than wood, hay, and stubble, which will burn up as unprofitable, right? So uh, I, I think there are things that we, can, uh, that, that we can experience in this life that are not necessarily sinful, but they're just not best. They're just a, a waste of time. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's like as if God is saying, you know, you, you're free to pursue what is not sinful, but don't you want to build on, you know, some, on uh, this building of a life that when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ is going to pass through this test of fire and will remain, will survive, right? And, and those, those rewards, you know, follow you then into, into heaven rather than the wood, hay, stubble that burns up. So in that sense, there are things that are wood, hay, and stubble that are not evil, but that just won't survive the refining fire of the judgment seat and so therefore are of no eternal value in that sense. But every single thing you do counts for eternity because if you do the thing that will not have any, of, uh, any eternal value, you could have been doing something that had eternal value. And so that has eternal implications, right? doesn't mean that you're going to hell for it. It just means that you don't have as many crowns or as much capacity to, to you know, worship Christ in heaven um, as you otherwise would have. And, you know, I, I use this when I preach through Second Corinthians 5 and the judgment seat of Christ. I use this this analogy from from Jonathan Edwards where it's like in heaven every vessel will be full but not every vessel will be the same size right and so there's you're not lacking anything in heaven because you're perfected but your vessel might be smaller than the next person's, which is bigger, and there's this greater capacity for uh, understanding and praise and, and appreciation of all that God is for you. And so I think that's an analogy of, of heavenly rewards. How, how much capacity will you have for Christ to fill? Um, so, in that, so in one sense, there are things that will burn up and so are of no eternal value. In another sense, everything matters for eternity. Everything. Now, can there be any, any, any profit in reading pagan literature? And there's a, you could take that a couple of ways, right? Do you mean like reading The Hobbit? Or, you know, I don't know, was Tolkien a believer? Whatever. Um, did Tolkien write The Hobbit? I don't remember. Lord of the Rings? You know what I mean? Is there, is there profit in reading something that's not the Bible or that is not, you know, specifically seeking to be in submission to the Bible? I, I, think, I think there can be. I think there's profit to rest, 
And there's profit to leisure, and there's profit to letting the mind uh, come down. The, there's a, an apocryphal story about the Apostle John in early second century literature. Uh, who knows if, it's, if this really happened, but the way, it's a story that says, um, you know, somebody approached the Apostle John who was, uh, you know, sort of sitting around and, and I don't know if he was listening, listening to music or doing something that, that this, this Christian pilgrim seemed, it seemed frivolous to him. Well, why, why is the, the Apostle John the aged, the one who, you know, laid his head on the bosom of Christ, you know, just kind of sitting and enjoying nature? And the, the story is that the Apostle John said to this guy, uh, what's that you've got there? He says, it's a bow, like a bow and arrow. He says, uh, you've been carrying that with you on your whole journey? Yes, I have. How come when you were carrying it, weren't you holding it, you know, bent this way, ready to strike the entire way? And he says, oh, well, because, you know, if I did that, the, the strings would be, become too elastic and eventually they would, they would stretch out. And when I needed it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly, you know, fling back and the arrow wouldn't fly. It would just sort of, and everything fall to the ground. And he says, that's why I'm in here doing this thing that you think is, is worthless. Because uh, if you keep the bow bent forever, it won't fire the way it ought to be when you need it. And his, his point is, if you're constantly going, constantly working, constantly pressing with no time for rest or leisure, uh, you're going to wear yourself out and be of no use. So I think there are recreational activities. We ought to have a good theology of, of recreation. I, I dare say that's not really our problem. I think our problem in this age is the abundance of recreation and an and, and absolute pandemic of laziness. Nobody wants to work. Nobody works industriously. Nobody gives their, their self wholly to what they're doing, by and large, generalization. So, but there are some of us who are perfectionists and who have a too high of a view of themselves that are liable to push ourselves uh, too, too much, and we need a good theology of rest and recreation. And, and part of that could be reading you know, a fiction book or something like that that lets the mind relax. Now, if you're talking about like is there profit to reading like Aristotle or Plato or the, how about the, the heretics of Israel? Is there profit to reading the Manichaean literature? You know what I mean? That Augustine was, was uh, in, entranced by in, in his early life. I, I think that so long as you are filtering everything through a biblical worldview and really putting it to the test of, the, of, a, of a scriptural lens, you can read anything with profit because... If it's true, uh, well then, therefore, it, it, it supplements what you know the Scriptures to be saying. And, and it bolsters your faith in the truth, gives you a different angle on those things. If it's false, right, it, it trains you to recognize falsehood where it's out of accord with Scripture. And, how you, and, it, and it sort of, I think, gives you the opportunity to say, okay, if I had this author in front of me or somebody who was um, impressed with his arguments, right? And so... Um, you don't ever read anything with just this sort of passive, let me just soak it in and not think discerningly. I don't, I don't watch baseball games that way, right? I don't watch TV that way, you know, movies that way. I mean, I mean you know, you, you don't have to always be trying to find, okay, that's out of accord with this. But, you know, you have to sort of be active enough to say, I'm not going to let any artist or author sort of lead my affections or my, my, my thoughts according to a worldview that may very well be foreign to what I know is true. I'm always discerning. I'm, there's always like this little Rolodex in my mind where I'm going, okay, you know, what, what does the scripture say about that? 
down to visiting a museum, which talks, which has fossils and says, you know, 65 million years ago, this dinosaur, you know, and, and we go to a museum and the kids read that. And I say, you know, is can you read this 65 million, 65 million years ago? Is that, is that right? Right. And what, what I'm trying to teach my kids when I do that is you, you don't, you don't just know that the world was created in, in, you know, six days and that the earth is young because this is how the scriptures teach it. But you, as you're taking in a, a sign in a museum, which has nothing to do with the, you know, spiritual things or church or the Bible, you're kind of always alert to say 65 million, you know, red light, that, you know, ding, that goes, that goes off. That doesn't, that doesn't fit, right? Why doesn't it fit? Well, because the earth is young, because, you know, uh, evolution is a lie of naturalism and you know, atheistic philosophy. And so you're always cultivating that. So I don't think there is anything that you couldn't read for profit. So long as you, you do it with a, a mind and a conscience informed and directed by scripture. Yeah. And in that way, you plunder the Egyptians, right? In that way, you, you know, you, you take what is Satan's and you press it into the service of, of Christ. It, it, not, not by simply adopting it wholesale. Oh, that was a great argument. Uh, he said it, so I believe it. But even that was a bad argument. Let me confront that with the scriptures. And now I'm stronger for having read that. Yeah, Marco. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question from one of our members. Um, in light of what we're hearing and seeing on the news with UFOs and extraterrestrial things, does the Bible inform us of anything to that regard? Should we think they're demons? Should we just discredit everything we hear? How do we think through that? So, you know, could there be demons who are manifesting themselves in certain ways? I mean, I... I suppose. I, I think, in general, as when it comes to life on uh, you know outside of this planet, I think the Bible teaches us this. One, it doesn't. So it does not say that there were any other planets aside from Earth, right? That you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is this, and the heavens are everything else, right? Um, and so, interestingly, that He would distinguish right the the bodies, the celestial bodies of the heavens from the earth. If there were other life, you know, planets with life like this on there, if there was another race or species other than human beings, right, at the very, very least, God hasn't told us about it. And that kind of omission, I think, is very, very loud in its silence. When you puzzle that with the fact that God is by nature one to reveal himself, okay, that, that God is a fountain of goodness and love and glory and blessedness. And, and by virtue of the fullness of that fountain, he overflows in the communication of his being first within the persons of the Trinity and the eternal generation and eternal procession. And then in the creation of that, which is not God, right? There's such fullness in God that God creates what is not God to communicate the beauty of that fullness. And, and he does that not to sort of hide it in a corner, right? But he does that to be worshipped and he to be known, to be understood, and to be praised for what people see and understand. To me, it, it runs counter to that for God to create uh, an entire sort of race of other people who would they be in his image? I mean, the Bible says that, that, that man is created in the image of God. 
it would run contrary, it would seem to me, to that, that aspect of God's nature to communicate himself and to reveal himself, to, to hide from his image bearers uh, this entire sort of parallel alternate race or world. Now, that having said that, right, we're discovering things in space all the time. There's plenty that was hidden to a lot of people for a lot of time. But I think that that is his way of, of, of making us realize that as vast as the universe is, I'm more vast, right? As, as seemingly um, unending and impenetrable, right? As the, the, the universe, the galaxies, the billions of galaxies are, right? I'm bigger than all of that. And there's more, there's more wonder for you to find in me through all of the ages of eternity that you could ever dream of exhausting. And, and that's because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you this by letting you build these gadgets that can go farther than anybody might have ever dreamed of going so that you can see the vastness. But in all of that, there's no, there's no evidence of, of, of life. And I, I just think that those several thoughts have kept me from caring at all about UFOs or whatever else. I mean, I've got so much to be caring, cared about, concerned about with the people that are in this room, let alone the people that are on this campus, let alone the people that are in this state, <laughs> in this country, and on this planet. Um, I want to, I want to kill my sin. I want to bless the church. I want to worship Christ. I want to make His name famous. And uh, you know, if there's, if something's out there somewhere, uh, all right, fine. It won't, it won't blow my mind. It won't change the way that I think. I'm not trying to escape this planet. Uh, except in one way, um, and uh, I'm trying. You know, I'm trying to to be faithful and go to sleep with my fathers. I'm not trying to search out things that God says are, t- are too wonderful for me. So um, I would encourage those to. I, I would just put point us back there. God hasn't told us those things. What He has told us makes that a very very big uh, omission. And it's his nature to reveal himself, and so I don't know why he wouldn't say those things so that we would worship him for those things. And, uh, and then we've got plenty to worry about at home. Well, I kind of hate to end it on the UFO question, but <laughs> I, we only have like three minutes left. I'm sorry. I just don't think we're going to get to any more. I think I got to four of the 13 that were emailed to me. This happens every time. So don't feel bad if yours didn't get asked. Hopefully we can hang on to these and, and do this again later. And uh, I know there's others on the floor too, and I apologize, but we're just kind of getting to our end this Wasn't morning. Was there another so. quick Christology one? About, sure, which one? The, e, uh, the EFS and Sonship. Real fast. I can do that okay. too minutes because i think i've said it before okay so we had it said is denying the eternal functional subordination of christ which you should do compatible with believing in the eternal sonship of christ which you should do so the answer is yes right um so christ is eternal i guess we have time for three or four more (laughs) christ is eternal son right christ does not the, the eternal son does not become son Right? No more than the eternal father becomes father. So Christ is eternal son. The second person of the Trinity is son from eternity because the father is communicating his nature to the son from eternity, eternal generation, John 5, 26, and, and, and so on. But that sonship, a lot of times people think, well, what it means to be son is to be subordinate. Like a son submits to his father. If Christ was son from eternity, then he submitted to his father from eternity. That simply doesn't follow. To be son in the way that the Bible predicates sonship of the second person of the Trinity means to to share the same nature as the father. Uh, When my father sires me, he passes the nature of humanity 
to me through ordinary generation. When, when the Father eternally begets the Son in that ineffable, mysterious communication of the divine essence from all eternity, he, words are, are difficult, I wanted to say constitutes, establishes, even that, you know, I'm a little bit scared of doing that. What God does is he eternally passes the nature of deity to the Son. He, he, so for the Son to be of the Father is for the Son to be homoousios, consubstantial, of the same nature as the Father, namely God. Everywhere you look in, in the early church, I was reading uh, Gregory of Nazianzus on my vacation, and, and consistently... Who doesn't? Yeah, right. <laughs> Every... Every place you see him talk about this eternal generation, you see him do it implicitly as if he couldn't imagine another way of thinking that that makes the son like the father. He doesn't say, well, since he was, since he was made son, he was subordinate or something like that. Not at all. It's the exact opposite. Sonship communicates likeness with the Father, not subordination to the Father. So we, we affirm the eternal sonship of, of the second person and deny the eternal functional subordination of the second person. You can go back and listen to my, my ShepCon seminar uh, about that. See? You did, did it. it. Good job. All right. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you again for just how applicable your word is to our life. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, Lord, that the creator of the universe would have all of the answers. And Lord, thank you for just Mike and Phil's dedication to studying your word, to shepherd our flock, to uh, even share the wisdom that they have learned. Lord, help us, though, too, to be studiers. Help us, too, to be uh, workers that uh, handle accurately your word and, and that can dig into the word for ourselves to see even the answers to our questions, answers to our problems, answers to our relationships, answers to everything. Lord, help us to dig in deep to the doctrine so that we can then know how to apply it to our lives. Father, just bless the rest of our time today, uh, even as we go a second hour to hear Pastor John give him strength and great wisdom uh, today as he teaches as well. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.